welcome back to the show. As you may know, I've been traveling the world to find the best flavor of ice cream. I haven't found it yet, but today hopefully is a, is a special day. I'm in Southern California with my uh, my friend Shark, I guess. Uh, Shark, what do you have for me for the best flavor of ice cream? All right, bro, let me just warn you right now, this is real sick, like epic ice cream flavor. Okay. I mean, there are some gnarly flavors out there. This one is totally rad, so you better be super stoked to try Berry Malibu Wave. Are wow. You, are you okay. ready for this? I am super stoked. All right, totally, dude. I'm just telling you, watch out, all right? Okay, thank you. Let's try this out. Mmm. Mm. It's not the best. I have to say, I'm sorry, um, but I'm going to keep on traveling the world to find the best flavor of ice cream. I want to thank you so much, Shark. All right. um, but on to my next adventure. Mm. Tune in next week where I travel the world to find the best flavor of ice cream. Thank you so much. Keep riding. All right, welcome back. Welcome, everyone, I should say, to the well here at STSA. You know what's strange? Is that guy's traveling the world, but he's wearing the same outfit every single week. Isn't that tell you. I tell you, you must have a lot of those shirts, okay? <laughs> hey, since we're in a funny mood and we're talking about ice cream, I'm opening up here with ice cream jokes, all right? Ice cream jokes. I got four ice cream jokes, and you know, when I tell jokes, I'm not trying to be funny, I'm trying to be cheesy, and the cheesier the better. Here we go, joke number one. Tell me if you know the answer to this one. What happens after you eat a gallon of all-natural ice cream? You get Briar's remorse. <laughs> How did Reese eat her ice cream? With her spoon. Is there with her spoon? Is there Reese there with her spoon? That's it. It's an easy one. Where's the best place to learn how to make ice cream? Sunday school. <laughs> and last but not least, what is Homer Simpson's favorite flavor of ice cream? Chocolate chip cookie. Oh, no! There we go. <laughs> Chocolate chip cookie. No! There we go. We are talking about ice cream for those who are just joining in and saying, what in the world is going on in this church right here? What we are doing is we are talking about different flavors of ice cream, but the goal is not to talk about different flavors of ice cream. The goal is to talk about different flavors of spirituality. And what we're doing is a series called Finding Your Flavor. We're in part five. So the way these series work, for those who are just kind of tuning in, we kind of take one topic, and instead of every week discuss a new topic, we take one topic and divide it over the course of four to six weeks. So we're right now in part five. But if you missed the first parts, then you can go to the website, stsa.church, and click on the well, and you can watch all the parts that you've missed so far. You can do your binge watching. You can watch all the episodes thus far and get yourself caught up. What we're doing as we are talking about different ways to the way. Because what we agreed in the very beginning of this series, that there's only one way to the Father, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. But there are many ways to the way. And not all of us have to look the same spiritually. Not all of us need to connect to God in the same spiritual way. And there can be some variety. The goal in the end is the connection with God, but how we get there isn't as important as the connection. And that's why ice cream flavors is a good kind of model or analogy. Because when you eat ice cream, no matter what flavor you eat, chocolate, vanilla, Rocky Road, cookie dough, French vanilla, butter, pecan, whatever it is, ice cream is pretty much the same regardless of what flavor. Like 99% or 90% of it is the same. But the, the different sugar, the different toppings, the different flavor make it taste completely different. So spirituality is the same way. 
We need to connect to God. But in the end, if you connect in a different way than I connect, that's not the issue as long as we connect to him in the end. The goal of this series is to figure out ways to expand our spiritual repertoire, not reduce it. The goal isn't to say, this is the only flavor of ice cream that I grew up with, this is the only one. The goal is to say, you know what, let me try a new flavor of ice cream and see if I develop a taste for it. Maybe I find something that I liked, but I never knew I liked. Same thing spiritually. Who can remind me? Every week we're talking about two different ways that we connect with God. Let's do a little recap just for the sake of those who are, or just see if you guys are listening. The first week, okay, we talked about people who are tradition, I'm sorry, who are naturalists and sensates. Naturalists connect with God how? Through? Nature. Sensates connect with God how? Through? Through their senses. Very good. Sight, sound, smell, whatever it may be. The week after that, we kind of did the structural ones, people who connect with God in structured ways. We talked about the traditionalist who connects with God through? Rituals. Someone said the right way. <laughs> Someone who connects to God the right way. That was right on cue. Perfect. Okay. Let me guess. Traditionalist. Someone who connects to God through ritual. Okay. Through a set of prescribed prayers. They like prescription. And then we talked about the aesthetic. The aesthetic connects with God through self-denial. Okay. Fasting is a means of it, but self-denial in a larger scope. Last week, we got more action-oriented. We talked about the activist and the caregiver. The activist connects with God through, just last week, confronting, okay? Actions, but specifically confronting evil in the world. These are the Martin Luther Kings of the world who see evil in the world and confront it, all right? And then the caregiver, as the name implies, connect with God through caring for others. Today, we're going to talk about enthusiast and contemplative. And if I had to group these two, I would say this is the week for the people who connect with God through mystery and through a highly mysterious or mystical or faith-filled kind of way. It's going to be a little bit vague, but I'm going to try to make it easy for you. This week, actually, as we've kind of gone along in this series, in the very beginning especially, okay, I was speaking about things that I didn't, flavors I didn't like. I was speaking about things that I didn't have personal experience with, okay, especially when we're in the sensate and the caregiver. I spoke about things that weren't my natural flavor. This week and next week, much easier for me. Because this week, I'm one of the two, okay? And next week, I'm definitely the one that we're talking about next week. But more importantly, my wife is both of the two that we're going to talk about here today. So she is terrified that every story I tell, okay, that you are going to know that it's her. And you can, some of them will be her, but not all of them will kind of conceal the names. But you are welcome to assume every story is about her, okay? That would make me super duper happy, keep her on the edge of her seat all week, okay? We're going to talk about an enthusiast and a contemplative. Let's start with enthusiast. Enthusiast is not what you may think. Enthusiast isn't necessarily like the rah-rah sis guys. An enthusiast is someone who loves God and connects with God through expectancy. Through expectancy. And what I mean by that, an enthusiast, of which I am one, not my strongest one, but it is my number two one, is someone who expects God to work in everything. An enthusiast very rarely will use the word random or coincidence. An enthusiast connects things. And when they see things happen, they automatically say, that must have been from God for a reason. The person you sat next to on the airplane ride wasn't random. An enthusiast sees that as the must have been from God, that conversation was from God to teach me a lesson. 
The enthusiast gets a call or a text message at just that right time. They don't see that as random. They see it as maybe God was trying to interrupt my day for a specific purpose or specific reason. An enthusiast sees an opportunity at work, a door closing or something happened at work, and automatically thinks to themselves, maybe God is trying to send a message. Now, obviously, this enthusiasm okay, can be taken to an extreme, okay, an unhealthy extreme. Okay? You can be... Some people, one person was driving one time to a party, okay, and the light turned red. God doesn't want me to go to this party. It means he wants me to go home and pray, okay? You can take it to an unhealthy extreme. Okay, this is my wife's story, but this is a funny one. Not that one. This one is a wife's story. Sometimes Marianne will tell me that she was in the mall buying whatever, and the Christian bookstore just happened to be in front of her, okay? And then a book title, which she was just thinking about that word in the book title, so she had to buy that book and every book that was around it, okay? From God. I'll tell you how I feel this enthusiastic, this enthusiast personality in me. Many times I'll be sitting with someone, either for confession or counseling or whatever it may be, and someone will come and tell me something. And in my heart, in my gut, my gut is telling me, say this. And this is against what I just told the last person who said the exact same words. And this is 100% what I would normally say. But there's something in my gut that says, no, no, say this, 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 this is... And I oftentimes find myself doing this. Like sometimes you may see me, I'm listening to you, but I may look down at my cross sometimes and I kind of fiddle it with it in my hand. Oftentimes I'm praying. And what I'm saying is, God, I don't think that's the right thing to say. But if you make her say this again, I'm going to say this. Okay? Like if you, if she pushes this button, I'm going to push this button. And she push it, and then I go. And I'm telling you, nine out of ten times, at least I think, it's the right thing to be said. Okay? It doesn't turn out to bite me because um, it's something that's like a, a God thing. Another time, or oftentimes, Someone, one of you, will come to me and tell me of a hardship in your life. Say, Father Anthony, can you believe this happened to me? This happened at home. This happened in my work. This health thing happened to me. And in my mind, I'm trying to be compassionate and sympathetic. And I truly am. But in my mind, or I should say in my spirit, I feel like, well, maybe that is because of that other thing that you told me about before, that relationship that was never fixed. Maybe now you'll understand what that person is going through. But I don't want to say that because it's really in in insensitive. But so many times, you'll come and say something to me, and I'll feel like, as bad as that is, I really think that's from God to connect it to this, because God wants to do something. Truth be told, okay, I'll make fun of myself right here, the enthusiast personality. As I was preparing this message, not just this message, but this particular section of this message, as I was preparing this particular section of this message, so on whatever day it was, I was sitting in my car, okay, because oftentimes, I don't have an office, okay, so I make my car an office, okay, and when I really need to focus, like I work from home, I work in coffee shops, whatever it may be, but oftentimes when I really, 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 really need to focus, I'll get my car, I'll drive to the kid's school because I pick him up from school, and I'll just get there early, and I'll sit in the parking lot, go in the back seat, and I work in my car, and I'm that guy, and people walk by, and everything's fine, that's my office, that's where I really focus the best, you know, I can't tell you how much work, productivity I get in the back seat of the car there, so I'm sitting there because I don't have internet there, so I'm sitting there in the backseat of the car, and I'm preparing this exact passage, this section of my message. And I wanted to look up a verse. I don't have internet on my, on my laptop. So I pull out my phone, which is a no-no when preparing a sermon. You never pull out this thing when you're doing something serious. So I pull out my phone to get the U version to get the verse that I wanted. I pulled it up. At the app crashed. No problem. Did it again. App crashed again. I said three times the chart. I went for the third time. It crashed again. God doesn't want that verse. <laughs> that verse is not in today's message. God did not want that verse. That was as clear as day to me. And you sit there and laugh 
but it is clear that an enthusiast, the way he thinks, is slightly different than other people. Here's a verse that I chose instead of that verse. Romans 11:36. This is how an enthusiast thinks, that of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That nothing is random. Nothing is coincidence. Everything comes from God. Now, with that said, if you are not an enthusiast, you are extremely nervous by the description that I just gave of your priest. You are extremely nervous of anyone who has this personality because the worst things that have happened in this world have come probably from people of this personality with a God-told-me-so mentality. Wars have been started. The Crusades were fought. People have been rude and, and, and so arrogant and so in-your-face holier than thou because God wants me to tell you the following. And clearly, this personality, if not understood, can be abused. But what I say is, while it absolutely can be abused, that instead of throwing it away entirely, let's understand it properly. Let's not throw it away because it can be abused, because all of the spiritual flavors can be abused if someone is insincere. That's why in the beginning we talked about a true heart, a sincere heart. Let's not throw it away because people abuse it, and people have used it in a spiritual bullying way, and wives have told husbands, I think God doesn't want me to have sex with you anymore. And children have told parents, I think God wants me not to talk to you because he said, hate your father and mother. And people have absolutely abused this. And we do this every Sunday. God wants my team to win. He doesn't want you. Like, we abuse this on a regular basis. But let's try to understand it properly as opposed to throw it away as something that's useless. Here's how I think you should understand an enthusiast personality. There's a right way and a wrong way. The wrong way is all things are from God. That's the wrong way to be an enthusiast. The right way is God is in all things. Am I splitting hairs? Is it just semantics? Or is there a difference? God is in all things versus all things are from God. What's the difference? For sure, all things are not from God. For sure. Greed is not from God. Killing is not from God. Your friend who talked bad about you is not from God. I can't say that's from God. Those are things that we do. You have a problem in your marriage, that's not from God. That's because you're not invested in your marriage. You have a problem at work, it's not from God. It's because you're lazy at work. You have a problem with your health, it's not from God. It's because you don't eat properly. Those things are not from God. Those things are from our mistakes, the mistakes of others, and, the, and just the sinful world that we live in. Not everything is from God. And it is wrong to think that God is this micromanaging God who takes away our free will and, and gives us a little cold virus here, and then no, change it to a flu virus, and no. And it is wrong to think that all things are from God. The right way is not all things are from God, but God is in all things. And no matter what is in my life, if I look and I search, I can find God in it. Verse from Acts chapter 17, verse 27. That they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That's the right kind of enthusiast. He is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. How does this work? This works like this. I say I got a problem in my marriage. Is that from God? No, that's from me because I'm not invested in my marriage. But can I find God in that marriage problem? Yes. Maybe this happened, and maybe God is trying to tell me, it's because you're not praying for your marriage. How in the world do you expect to be successful just by reading books? Like, reading books is good, 
talking is good, but if you're not praying for your marriage, and you're not praying in your marriage, how in the world do you expect to be successful? The problem at work. Maybe the message is not that God wants you to get fired. Maybe you got fired because of yourself. You're incompetent, you're lazy, you show up late every day, every time your boss walks by, you're on Facebook. It's not from God that you got laid off. But maybe you can find God in it, telling you that maybe I want you to have a simpler life. Maybe you don't need as big a sound. Maybe you don't need as big a house as you think you do. And maybe the true joy of life is found in the simpler things. Health problems. You got a health problem, not from God. But maybe when you can find God in it, is maybe God wants you to slow down a little bit and count the ro or smell the roses and spend a little bit more time at home as opposed to always on the run, on the run, on the run. Mystery needs to work in conjunction with reason. God is in all things, but not all things are from him. So we cannot take a kind of pie in the sky, head in the sand, blind kind of all things are from God, but we also don't want to go to the other extreme and say nothing is from God and it's all me. What we want to do is to say whatever it is, I can find God and I can find God speaking to me in that or through that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says that we are God's fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers. So here's how we're going to be God's fellow workers. You want to know a message from God? You want to know God's will for your life? You don't just open the Bible and boom, that's whatever it is. That, that, that's not from God. What you do is you read the Bible. You study the Bible. You ask questions about the Bible. You want to know how to make a decision? You don't just open it up and whatever the Bible says, I'm going to do that. Or I just, oh, I turn on the Christian radio and whatever the guy the song is about, that's for a message from God. You don't do that. What you do is you have discussions with people. You seek wise counsel. You do a list of pros and cons. You use your brain. However, at the conclusion of that process, you leave room for God to speak. So you don't negate your brain, but you don't worship your brain. You don't negate God, but you don't make it God, all God, and not me. You use your brain, but by the same token, you leave room for God to work. You don't be scared of a little mystery in your life. Because Christianity, I said in the beginning, that we're talking about ways to the wake. We're talking about a relationship with a supernatural God. So why are we surprised when a supernatural God works in supernatural ways in our life? We have to leave room for him to do it. I'll give you an example of something that if you're not an enthusiast will make you very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. And you will say that no one should make any decision based on what I'm about to say. Does God ever speak through dreams? All the enthusiasts said, amen. All the non-enthusiasts said, no way, no how. God does not. Dreams are random. Dreams are not based on God. They're based on what you ate for dinner. Okay, they're based on what you watched on TV before you went to sleep the night before. Dreams are random. We should not make major decisions based on dreams. I agree. You should not make major decisions based on dreams. Someone can't come and say, I had a dream of Brad Pitt, so therefore I know God wants me to marry someone who looks like Brad Pitt. Okay, and I'm going to keep on looking until I find someone who looks just like Brad Pitt because that was in my dream. The likelihood of you finding someone who looks like Brad Pitt is very slim because I'm already taken, ladies. So. <laughs> there ain't that many of us, okay? So I am not saying that every dream is from God. But I am also not saying that God doesn't speak through dreams because that would simply be unbiblical. Does God ever speak to people through dreams? Old Testament, who did God speak to through dreams? Joseph, many times. Who else? Jacob, what did you say? Someone else? Abraham, very good. Who else? Daniel. How about Solomon, too, with the temple? Many times. 
So to say God doesn't speak through dreams, okay, that's an Old Testament thing. How about New Testament? Joseph, his father, like the earthly father of Christ. Joseph spoke, uh, was spoken to in a dream many times. Who else? Peter, very good, and the clean and unclean. Go back to Joseph, the story of Christmas. Who else was spoken to in a dream or a vision? Three wise men, very good. Ananias, who baptized St. Paul. So many times, God spoke through dreams. So I'm not saying that whatever you dreamt about the night before, you had a dream of a circus, so quit your job and go join the circus. I'm not saying it like that. But I'm saying I can't say that there's no such thing as God speaking to us through dreams. I need to make logical decisions in life, but I need to leave room for God to speak beyond the logic in supernatural ways. Actually, St. Peter on the day of Pentecost said this. He was reciting the uh, prophecy from the book of Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. We need to think, logic, discuss, wise counsel, pros and cons, whatever. But then in the end, God always has veto power. And God always has the ability to work against our logic or above our logic, not against, above our logic. I think of two examples from the Old Testament. Abraham, someone said Abraham. God told Abraham, okay, if I tell you, how many people think God wants you to kill your son? Anyone? How many people think God wants you to kill your son? Okay, hopefully no hands go out. I know we feel that way at times, but hopefully no one says God wants us to kill our sons. It's against logic. We should not kill our children. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Father Anthony Messa. Do not kill your children. But God worked against logic, walked above logic and told Abraham, I want you to kill your son. Now, of course, he didn't in the end. Another one, Moses stood in front of a sea. I don't know about you, but I'll tell you advice for me that I tell my children. When you stand in front of the ocean, sea, don't go in. That's the advice. When you stand in front of the Red Sea, don't go in. Stay on the ground, don't go in the water. But Moses, against all logic and against all good counsel, God told him, I want you to go through the ocean. My logic would have said go around, maybe go above, maybe build a bridge, something. God's logic was, no, go straight through the middle of it. So I can't say that God always speaks in this kind of way. What I can say is that we use our brain, but we always give God a chance to override it. When the enthusiast personality is done against the Bible, against logic, against common sense, against the counsel of wise people, it is a very dangerous, dangerous personality. But when it is done in humility, when it is done in sincerity of heart, it is the healthiest way to live life, knowing that I am not alone in this world. Because here's what an enthusiast must believe. An enthusiast, if you cut open me to my core, my enthusiastic and my enthusiast core, and any enthusiast here, the core says that I believe that God is alive and he is active in my life. And that's why before I rush to do anything, I always give him room because I don't believe that God is dead or God is silent. I believe God is alive. I believe God is active. I believe God is speaking to me. He's working in my life. He's working in yours. And he's working in this world that we live in. You see, I believe, and most enthusiasts will agree, that God has a lot to say and that God does not want to be silent on the majority of things in this world. I don't think the problem is that God wants to be silent. I think the problem is that we are not hearing him and we don't give him space to speak. So what I see is that what we do is we limit God. I say, okay, God, you will speak in this way. So I will come to church every Sunday. You will speak to me during this half hour. You will speak. The rest of the day, no. Every other conversation, no. I will not accept that. I will go to sleep at night, and I will tell you that the entire time I'm asleep, 
you will not speak to me, and there's nothing you can do to speak to me. And an enthusiast, just, I can't buy that. I believe God is always speaking. I believe God is always working. I believe God does speak through random conversations. I believe God does speak through random emails. I believe God does speak to us through the circumstances of life that we don't see any connection, but one day we'll look back and say, ah, that God was maybe, and that's why he was trying, and that's why he didn't, and that's why he didn't. I believe that the majority of us, at least I say for myself, I start my day and I'm on my knees and I'm in front of God and I'm saying, God, I'm yours, I'm yours, I'm yours. This day belongs to you. And that's the way my day starts. And then what happens the rest of the day? I get distracted. And I get distracted over here and I get distracted. So I believe that God throughout the entire day is trying to get me back and trying to like jump in my day and say, remember me? And I say, oh yeah, I remember you and I'm committed to you. And then I kind of get distracted over here and he jumps in and say, remember me? Remember me? Remember what you said in the morning? Remember your, my purpose for your life? Like, remember me? I don't believe that there's anyone in this world that God is saying, you know what? Ah, eh, don't worry about it. Leave him. We'll see him next Sunday. Leave him. And, 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 like, you came on Sunday? Like, good for you. Enjoy your week. Like, I'll see you next Sunday, and I'll see if I got something in store for you. Like, I'll figure something out. I don't believe that's how God works in my life. I don't believe that's how he works in your life. I believe that every single day, he is trying to work. But are you open to him working? Let me show you a scary verse. Let me show you a scary verse. This is a verse to be scared. Matthew 13, 58, the scariest verse in the Bible. Now he, meaning Jesus, did not do many works there. There equals circle, there equals my life. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This verse scares me. I never want there to be my church I never want there to be my family. I never want there to be my heart. God, how come you didn't do something in my church? How come you didn't do something in my family? How come you didn't do something in my life? God's saying, I was trying all day, but you limited me. You said that the only time that I speak is those 10 minutes in the morning that you stand up, you say your prayer, and you shut off for the rest of the day. You, you tied my hands. You shut me up. You duct tape my mouth. You say that the only way God speaks is in this way. And no, that random thing could never be from God. You didn't believe that I could speak to a random person. And I tell you this, I believe it with all my heart. You can hear God's voice when you are on your knees in prayer, just as much as you can hear God's voice when you're in a conversation with a random stranger. You can hear God's voice when you are serving and you are, like, like last week we talked about the caregiving, you can see God in those things and you can see God in a random person on an airplane who just sit next to you and said something to you and you never know, that could be a message from God. Neither extreme. Either extreme is bad. Everything is from God, nothing is from God. We need neither of those two extremes. We need to know that whatever happens to me, I can find God in it when I look for him. And I'll be honest with you, how this works for me. I remember one time when I discovered, I discovered, this is early on in my priesthood. You know, when, when you're a priest and you just see faces, just a lot of faces, okay? And a lot of faces and faces come, faces go. And there's a, 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 a like a, a danger to just see a sea of faces, okay? And, and I don't ever want to see a sea of faces. I want to people. And I remember one time when I discovered a face that I'd seen many times, okay, but I didn't know anything about it. It was just a face. And that face came and talked to me one time and gave me his name and everything like that and told me a story. 
But he said the following story. He said that he came to church, whatever, months ago or years ago, whatever it was, okay, and I was preaching a sermon. And he said, you don't know it, but I came to church that day. I came to church that day saying, God, this is your last chance. And you've heard me say this because this is the root of it. This is your last chance. I think you are irrelevant. I think you don't love me. I think that you are high and mighty over there, and I'm poor and lowly, and there's no connection between me and you. But I'll give you one more chance. And I'm going this Sunday because my mom won't stop nagging me or whatever. So I say, you know what? I'm going to give God one more chance. And I'm going to see God whether or not I'm important to you. That's what the person said to me. So you know what? In my heart, every Sunday that I preach, I say almost the exact same prayer every morning before I come to church. Please, God, that guy. Touch that guy. When I preach and I prepare my, my message, it's not for any of you. It's not for any of you. It's for that guy. And I expect that every week, please, God, send someone who is just coming to give you one more chance. Someone who has given up on you, help them give you one more chance, bring them to church. And I have discovered, I have discovered, I promise you, I have discovered that my expectancy is directly correlated to God's sending. That my expectancy, my saying, God, I believe that you will send someone. And I believe that it won't, there will be someone who is coming to give you one last chance. And I will do whatever I can to reach that person with my message. You bring him, God, and I'll give that message. And even if these all people say, you know what? We've heard this before. I'm, I'm going for that one guy. And I believe that my expectancy is directly correlated to that guy showing up at church. I found that what I expect when I show up in my life group on a Friday night, when I show up and say, God, speak to me and give me a message that I believe that God's work is directly correlated to my expectancy. Not because my expectancy leads to his work. His work is always there, but my expectancy opens my eyes and I believe and say, God, you're going to work in my life group this night. You're going to work in this random meeting with this person. That you speak through this. And I'm telling you, when you expect it, God works. Now, for the pitfall for this one, okay, I think this one's pretty obvious. What would be the pitfall for an enthusiast? The danger, of course, is deception. The danger is that you deceive yourself into thinking something is from God when it absolutely is not from God. That's why with this one, of all of them, the most important thing, if you struggle, not struggle, if you are an enthusiast, you must have a strong connection to the body of Christ, the church. And you cannot be a lone ranger because you will walk yourself right off a cliff. True story. There was a guy who spent the majority of his life as lost. Okay, his parents were Christian, but he kind of grew up, whatever. And he got himself into all kinds of problems. He ended up in jail multiple times. In jail, someone preached to him Christ, has a revelation, now I'm a Christian. He gets out of jail. I get a chance to meet him. And he is very sincere in his desire to get closer to God. But what he is, he's deceived himself into thinking that he knows everything there is to know about everything. I invite the guy to my house. We have a nice time together and we share and he's asking me questions. In his mind, orthodoxy is for idiots. He's asking me these questions and you know, like y'all have priesthood and y'all have this and y'all have this. And I very nicely kindly say, okay, this is where we see it in the Bible. This is how the early church practiced it. This is where it came from, one, two, three. Very easy going. Well, you know what? I just don't believe that that's what that verse means. I believe that verse means this. Okay, that's nice. But I'm telling you, that's not what the verse means. So what means this? Well, I believe that it should be interpreted this way. Okay, like, let's call time out right here. You have your opinion. It's wrong. And not to say it in a rude way, but what I'm saying is, you showed up and feel like, you know what? 
This is what God told me. Well, I'm saying that God speaks to not just you, but God has spoken to men and women before you. And there is a long history of people in the body of Christ, in the church, who God has spoken the exact opposite. So then is God speaking against himself? And if God tells these thousands of people and billions of people, all this one mess over here, you've been a Christian for 15 minutes and you got it all figured out in 15 minutes? What thousands of people didn't have figured out? Like that, 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 I don't mean it in a bad way, but I mean in the truest sense, that's stupidity, okay? That ignorance, that I got it all figured out and what God says to me negates everything God says to everyone else in the whole wide world because of what God says to me. That's a dangerous place to be in right there. One author, who is not Orthodox, by the way, but he is, he is Orthodox, even though he's not part of the Orthodox Church, he wrote the following. The idea, this is great, this, this is great. The idea, this, this is a great verse that applies not just to religion, but applies to everything in life. The idea that each person's religious opinion is of the same value is nonsense. For there is a body of knowledge which is tested by time that can be transmitted by the church to believers. You are absolutely welcome to your opinion, but not all opinions are of the same value. And that's what this person is saying right here. Because if, if God has spoken to the body for thousands of years, but then you think that one person, okay, it's a dangerous thing, okay? So if you're an enthusiast, you must have a strong connection to the body of Christ. You need the accountability. You need the wisdom. You need that fence around you to say, God told me this. And then the church tell you, okay, that's great, but let's, let's, let's taper it inside these kind of, you know, kind of walls right here, or else you're going to end up getting yourself into trouble. Show of hands, how many enthusiasts in the room? All right, more than I expected. All right, that's fantastic. All right. Now, we're going to shift gears from enthusiasm, the enthusiast, to the contemplative. How many contemplatives in the room? Okay, not as many as I thought. I thought there'd be more. Contemplative, if enthusiast is crazy, contemplative will make you feel much more comfortable because contemplative is very much, I would venture to say that if God made all these different flavors, the contemplatives, it's very easy for them to find themselves in church. They relate very much to church because what a contemplative is, is someone who loves God through adoration. Enthusiast or through expectancy, the contemplative is loving God through adoration. When I started my spiritual journey, I, like many other people who start their spiritual journey, usually when we start off, we focus our attention on obedience. That I'm living a certain way, and now I want to have a relationship with God, so that equals obedience. I have to stop doing this. I have to start doing this. I have to no more say these words. I have to say these words. Stop this TV show. We'll start doing these activities. We focus on what I have to do. But then as we grow, and as we mature, we realize that doing isn't as important to God as being. And I remember when I learned this lesson early in my spiritual life, there's a bishop in the Coptic church. His name is Bishop Paul. He's a bishop serving in Africa. And I remember I got a chance to spend five weeks on a mission trip in Africa. And I remember he's the one who opened my mind to... The spiritual life is not a mechanical set of rules and obedience to a set of, like, formulas. In my mind before, the fact that I'm spiritual now means I don't do this and I do this. That I say this and I don't say this. That I spend this much time in prayer using these words and I no more spend this time doing this. I thought these checkboxes is what made me spiritual. It's very mechanical is what I'm trying to say. And he opened my eyes, specifically in prayer, that prayer... 
Before that, I thought prayer was ask God for stuff and thank God for stuff that he gives you. So it's very stuff-oriented and stuff-focused. Thank you, God, that you gave me forgiveness. Please, God, help me to pray. It's very much focused on stuff. And then I got with this bishop. His prayer meetings, I remember thinking to myself, I'm thinking when I pray, I stand in front of like Almighty God. His prayer is like he's wrestling with like his son. Okay, it's like he's hugging a teddy bear. And he's talking about Jesus like the lover of our souls. And Jesus like my best friend. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he talk about like, you feel like in prayer, like he's hugging Jesus somehow. And, and sometimes like even in my mind, like he's like even like giving Jesus a noogie every now and then. Like it's a very intimate and warm relationship that he has. And it's very non-formal. It's very casual. But it was very, very devout. His love for God and his desire just to spend time with him the way engaged people want to spend time just stare at each other. The say engaged people sit on this side of the table together in restaurants. Okay, that's what it was like. All right. And that's when I learned that the spiritual life is not just about obedience, but there's more to life than obedience. A contemplative is listening to my words and saying, Amen, brother, preach. Because a contemplative loves a verse like this, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Contemplatives love these kinds of prayers. One thing I ask, to seek you in the temple, to gaze upon your beauty. <clears throat> Thomas Merton, who was a uh, Catholic uh, author, and I believe a monk, okay, from the, the 20th century, wrote the following. True, this is a true contemplative. He said, there are so many Christians who have practically no idea of the immense love of God for them and of the power of that love to do them good, to bring them happiness, and to free them from their chains. Contemplatives love that. The love of God. Gaze upon the beauty of God. To know the love of God which surpasses all understanding. Contemplatives are hooked on this love. If you can imagine the ocean, like God's love as the ocean. The majority of us think in terms of every day take a drink. Every day take a drink. A contemplative thinks in terms of take this shirt off and jump in. Okay, and swim in that bad boy and live there all day long. Contemplatives love retreat. They love prayer. They love to close the door to their room, shut the world outside. They don't need icons. They don't need music. They can just, they under the bed, under the couch, like they can just crawl into a little corner. Like a contemplative can, can close the door in the bathroom and just pray for hours and hours and just the beauty of God and how much God loves them and desires them. If you say that's weird, you're probably not a contemplative, but like the enthusiast, it is biblical. I'll give you several verses. King David was a clear contemplative. He loved to meditate and adore God. He said, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. Non-contemplatives, we're a little bit uncomfortable with this like emotional side of our relationship with God. Like we like to, to serve God, to like do stuff for God, to check stuff off boxes. But this emotional side, like it's a little bit, yeah, I, I, you know what I mean? Like it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But I want you to know that not only is it biblical from this perspective, emotions from man to God, but also from God to man. What relationship throughout the entire Old Testament does God compare his children to, children of Israel, to relationship with his wife, okay? 
right here, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. God, get a little emotional because I loved you. And then this verse right here, Jeremiah 2, 2, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Contemplatives, this fits, right? This is what you love. Non-contemplatives, this is very different than how we view God. We view God as the mighty guy. We view God as the master. We view God as the almighty and the one whom we serve. But a contemplative views God not as a servant-master relationship, but as a friend relationship. And actually, Jesus said, that's actually how we're supposed to, to look at him. Contemplative loves when Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. That's a contemplative. So while me and you, we focus on doing. We focus on being a servant of God. A contemplative focuses not on doing, but on being, on being a friend of God versus a, a servant of God. Because of that, it is easy to judge contemplatives. If you're an activist or a caregiver, contemplatives are the lazy people in the corner just doing quiet time again. They're not doing their chores around the house because they're just sitting there praying. And enough with the prayer. In the world you pray into, like what in the world is so important that you couldn't say it in 10 minutes and needed more time than that? Very easy for the contemplative to be misunderstood or judged. But that's the whole point of this series. You know, even the disciples judged someone who just wanted to adore God. In Matthew 26, there was a woman who came in devotion and adoration, just wanted to worship God and love her with all her heart by anointing him with that oil. And what did the disciples do when she anointed him with the oil? They said, why this waste? They were probably activists. Why this waste? Should have given it to the poor. Maybe caregivers. There's poor needy people. Why didn't you help them? And Jesus said what to them? Jesus said, all you non-contemplatives, why you trouble the woman? Leave her alone. She has done a good work for me. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Whether or not you are a contemplative, you agree. This level of adoration is something we should all strive for. So what I want to do is throw something out to the non-contemplatives. How do we reach that? Maybe we'll never reach that phase, but how do we grow in that area? To me, if there's one thing, there's one element that if you do this one thing, you will be 50% of the way there to reaching these kinds of levels of adoration. There's one thing more important than anything else. It's not a technique. It's not a certain devotion to read. It's not a passage in the Bible. It is eliminate distractions. It is not something you do. It is something that you don't do. Because a true contemplative just wants to be alone with God. And the reason why a lot of us struggle with this adoration, with love God with all your heart and soul, why it's easy for us to do versus be, why it's easy for us to think in terms of servant, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, versus friend, I just be a friend of God, is because of the distractions around us. Again, back to Thomas Merton, he said the following. Contemplation will not be given to those who willfully remain at a distance from God, who confine their interior life to a few routine exercises of piety and a few external acts of worship and service performed as a manner of duty. 
God does not manifest himself to these souls because they do not seek him with any real desire. At the beginning of this series, I told you that many of us grew up with the quiet time model of spirituality. That you had to get close to God, you woke up early in the morning, you read your Bible, and that's the only way to get close to God. And while I stand by my statement that is not the only way to get close to God, I would be lying if I said that's not an important way to get close to God. And I'd be lying if I told you that's a non-essential way. We all need to make time where we shut the doors. We turn off the phones. Even better, go in a separate room from the phone. Where there's nothing around us, we're totally distraction-free, and we push back on the world. The world's always pushing us to be more busy, okay, more inundated, and we push back on that. And we say, you know what? God number one, everything else number two. Everything else can wait. Nothing is as important to me right now for these next 10, 15 minutes as spending time at the feet of my master, my Lord, my best friend, the lover of my soul. All day long is very difficult. I struggle with the quiet. I struggle. But for these 10, 15 minutes, there's nothing more important to me than to be sitting at his feet. We all need that. And that's why our homework assignment for this week is going to be to do just that, to try to find periods. And I made it even very small. Okay, I think I said three to five minutes. Three to five minutes. As torturous as it sounds to be quiet for three to five minutes to be distraction-free. If we cannot find three minutes out of 24 hours times seven, then there's a real problem with this. We're going to try to be alone, distraction-free, three to five minutes, and just in the presence of God. And when you're in the presence of God, what you do, I don't even care what you do. Okay, the important thing is that you are there in his presence, distraction-free. Let me give you another quote from another author who says this. And this is both marriage advice as well as spiritual advice. He said, I've run into a situation in marriage counseling a number of times. The couple is unhappy, the wife is dissatisfied, and the husband cannot see why. He goes into a long recital of all that he is doing for her, holding down two or three jobs, building a new house, buying her everything. But to all this, the wife quietly replies, if only he would stop for a few minutes and give me himself. I sometimes think that God, as he sees us rushing about, all our doing of good says to himself, if only they would stop for a few minutes and give me themselves. I'll get you a quote right here. What am I supposed to do when I give God myself? Oh, so it's out of order. St. John Climacus, who was a monk from 3rd, from, 4th, uh, 5th uh, century, somewhere around there, said that when we are with God in the silent, what are we supposed to do? He said, look, let there be no studied elegance in the words of your prayer. Do not launch out into long discourses that fritter away your mind in efforts of eloquence. One word alone spoken by the publican touch God's mercy. A single word of faith save the good thief. Many words in prayer often fill the mind with images and distract it, while often one single word draws it into recollection. You can stare at a picture of Christ on the cross and just stare at the picture of Christ. You can take a passage in the Bible, just one, like one, not even one sentence, one phrase. Some people do that, like mercy, forgiveness, grace. And just think about that one thing, just for three minutes, just three minutes. You don't need, when two people are engaged and they're in love and they're nonsense, all that stuff, sometimes you can just be together and the communication doesn't even need to be verbal. That's how we need to be with God. We may not be that 24 hours a day with God, but we need to have some times of day when we do that distraction-free. The temptation for the contemplative, okay, as you saw up there earlier, the temptation for the contemplative is losing balance. What I mean by losing balance, 
as important as everything I just said about spending time with God and alone with God, and that is super duper important, never to the detriment of the rest of the spiritual life. So there's a temptation that I love God so much, I love to spend time with Him so much, and I say, this is holy, and this is sacred time, and everything else is the, the famous word in all, in all churches, secular. And I don't spend time with secular people. I don't know what that means. I don't spend time watching secular shows and secular music and secular conversations and secular restaurants and secular whatever. And I don't choose secular gum and secular teachers. I don't know what that means. Losing balance. We must realize if we get to the point that we cannot enjoy God in any of those other flavors that we talked about, and I cannot enjoy God in a nice sunset, and I cannot enjoy God in a nice Christian music. And I cannot enjoy God in fellowship with my brothers and sisters. And I cannot see God when I'm serving the poor and the needy. And I can only see God in my time, in my room with the door closed and the thing locked and my kids get away from me. And you're a distraction to my prayer. Then we've lost balance. And we've gone over the edge and we've done ourselves a disservice. As I said earlier, God can reveal himself when you're on your knees in prayer just as much as he reveal himself in a conversation with a stranger. God can reveal himself when you are on a retreat, just as much as he reveal himself when you are serving the poor. We have to be able to see God in all these things and not limit God to any one way. That's your enthusiast, and that's your contemplative. The enthusiast, our homework for the week, okay, you see on the back of your handout here in the yellow, the enthusiast, your homework for the week, is going for all of us, okay, we're all going to do these, is to, at the end of every day this week, to find one or two divine appointments that God gave you throughout the day. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, because I'm enthusiast at heart and I believe this with all my heart, God is working in every single day of your life and it's just a matter of whether or not you see it. We're going to write those down in a journal. Challenge number two, the contemplative challenge, is going to be that we will practice silence for three to five minutes a couple times this week. These two flavors remind us that as important as it is to be activists, fight against evil, important to care for the sick, important to worship God and his creation, important to God through ritual and structure and self-denial. But the most important thing is that God created us not to be servants, but to be children. God didn't create us to obey him. Obeying is important as a means of loving God, but not instead of loving God. It's not love or obey. It's love and way that you show love is by obedience. But the most important thing is that we devote ourselves to God and we give him the one thing did you know there's one thing? That song we sang at the beginning was perfect. I didn't know they were going to sing it, but it was perfect. Did you know that there's one thing in this universe, one thing that you have the power to give God that if you don't give it to him, he will never have? It's not your service. Like God doesn't need you to be a preacher. God can raise up another preacher. God doesn't need you to care for the poor. God can raise up a million people to care for the poor. God can make them not poor. God doesn't need you to sing to him. God got angels in heaven with all due respect to all the singers in the room, they take good care of him up there. There's only one thing, that if you don't do it, God will never have it. And that one thing can make God so happy. And that is, as someone shouted out from the back, to give him your heart, to give him your love, to say to him, God, I'm 100% belong to you, and I don't care about nothing else in this world as much as I care about you. You're everything to me. I'm telling you, those words... You may not realize it. I don't know if I'm going to say it this way, even though it's not 100% right, can put a smile on God's face in a way that you can't imagine. 
And I'll tell you how I know this. Because God is a father. Imagine you are a father or a mother and you have five children. You love your five children very much. And four of those five children love you so much. Love you so much. They love you. They call you. They, 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 they cook dinner for you. They come visit you. Like four of those five children love you so, so, so much. And they always tell you how much they love you. But that fifth child left home many years ago and before he left said, I hate you and I never want to see your face again. Can anything that those four children do erase the pain of the one child who left? Can anything they offered negate the pain of the one who rejected? In the same way that you have an opportunity to bring delight to God's heart in a way that no one else on this universe can. No one else on this universe can. By the same token, you have the opportunity to hurt God's heart in a way that no one on this universe can. And me telling God I love him will not replace you telling God that you don't want him. Me telling God that I love him cannot match you telling God that you love him. Because what God needs from us, all of us more than anything else, last verse. Oh, the last verse. Psalm 46, verse 10. The one greatest desire of God's heart is that we would be still and know that he is God. And our challenge for this week is to find time to see God in our life, to see his work, and to, I, I encourage you to, to link the two together, to see God's hand, and then to spend two or three minutes in silent adoration, thanking him and praising him and just worshiping him and telling him, I'm yours, God, for all my life. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Heavenly Father, from the depth of our heart, the great love that you always show to us. Lord, I pray that this week you would help us to show you how much we love you, how much we believe in you, how much we know that you are alive and active and working in our days. And you, Lord, like your entire existence is, is, is like honed in on, on, on getting me to be your son and bringing me into relationship with you. Help me to see your hand in my life this week, Lord, and respond in a way to make your heart happy. We love you so much, Lord, and we thank you for how much you love us, even though we really don't deserve that love. Thank you so much for loving us anyway. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.